Okay, let's take our Bibles, open it to the book of 1 Thessalonians, as we continue in our series of ultimate realities. Ultimate realities, as we consider the new year, what we ought to, what should be our thoughts and our convictions as Christians to guide every matter that we do, everything we think about, everything we, we do and plan, is to have these things in mind. And today we'll look at the hope of the resurrection. That will be the title of the sermon as well, as we look at the bodily resurrection of believers. So let's read it together, the text, and then we'll dive in. So 1 Thessalonians 4 from verse 13. This is the reading of God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with this, with, uh, sorry, will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, beloved, there are few things as devastating for us and as final for us as death. It is an experience which some of us have already faced or will face. So we have maybe lost a family member, a friend, or even a hero, and that can leave us shattered and hopeless. And there's this very interesting statistic that I discovered. So far, 10 out of 10 people die. Have you noticed that? Everyone must face this reality. And we all have to wrestle with questions like these. What happens after death? Is that really the end? Are we just going to be floating spirits either in heaven or hell? Or is there kind of a soul sleep where we are unconscious? Is there a judgment day? What is going to happen? So as I've mentioned, we're busy with this series of ultimate realities those truths which influence everything we think about, everything we do. And they are like the laws of nature. Whether you believe it or not, it does not cease to exist. They are real. They are true. But to believe them and to know them will make a massive difference in your life and the way you live your life. So last week we considered the doctrine of hell. I, consider you, I, I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that sermon, to go online and listen to it. Hell is this terrible eternal conscious torment for those who do not believe the gospel and today we'll look at the other side uh, the hope of the resurrection we will consider two things as we look at this text first the situation in the church of Thessalonica and then secondly the hope which Thessalonica had so first consider with me what was the situation in Thessalonica when Paul wrote these words look at verse 13 with me he says we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So this, this, this church in Thessalonica 
was experiencing intense persecution. And probably because of their persecution, some members of the church have died. So when we read the word asleep, that's another way to say they have died. And now they had a very practical question. What happens to those who have died? Will they miss the second coming of Jesus? They might have believed that they will be saved from their persecution and their suffering when Jesus comes again. That their suffering is temporary because Jesus is coming. But now some have already died. Have they perhaps missed the second coming of Christ? Are they left out? Are they going to be with us when we meet the Lord, when he comes again? And the root of their problem is simply this. Did you notice in verse 13 at the beginning? We do not want you to be what? Uninformed. The Greek here is where we get the word agnostic, not to know, agnosko, not to know. They did not know. They, had, they didn't have knowledge. And this was an area for Paul that Paul hasn't taught them yet. Throughout the letter, we see Paul again and again tells the Thess- Thessalonians, we don't need to teach you because we've already told you this. Look at um, chapter 4, verse 2, for example, when he says, Paul says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 9 to 11. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing. Look at the end of verse um, 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. So this is the first time in the letter where Paul says, This you do not know. We have instructed you. We have told you so many things. Here is an area that you have been lacking. And that's why Paul was so anxious to get back to this church, to try to fill in the gaps of their faith. Look at chapter 3, verse 10 with me. 3, verse 10, where Paul says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Brothers and sisters, this shows us doctrine matters. To have good theology is the difference between grieving with or without hope. That is very practical. Sometimes people critique theology and doctrine like this. It says, well, that is irrelevant to my life. How's that going to help me on Monday morning? How's that going to help me with this crisis in my life? Or others would say, trying to sound super spiritual, don't give me theology, give me Jesus. And they don't understand that the moment you have to answer the question, but who is Jesus, that you are doing theology? Still others say, you are so heavenly minded, you are of no earthly good. That is wrong. That is false. Good theology is intensely practical. It functions as an anchor for your soul when you stand at the grave. It keeps you centered on following Jesus in the thick and the thin. That is why Paul calls good theology in 1 Timothy sound doctrine. I love that phrase. It literally healthy doctrine. Good theology makes healthy, strong Christians. It gives them hope. Here we see what this doctrine of the resurrection was supposed to produce in them in verse 13. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I love that verse. It shows you there are two kinds of grieving. One is a Christian way and one is not a Christian way. There is a grieving with hope and there is a grieving without hope. So notice something. It is not somehow a lack of faith or unbelief for you to grieve when someone has died. We are human beings. Death hurts us. To mourn is not sinful. It's not a lack of faith. It's not somehow that you do not trust that they are in heaven or that they will be raised from the dead. Even Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus and he was about to raise him from the dead. But what is the difference between us and unbelievers? We grieve with rock-solid hope under our feet. This was the situation Paul was writing to. They were, they were uh, uninformed because Paul was quickly taken away from this church so there were holes in their faith. And Paul now is going to write to them to help them know the truth. And so this leads us to the second point. The second point is the hope. What is then the hope that Christians have? Now this hope is already subtly introduced by the imagery Paul uses for death in verse 13 when he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. The sleep was a euphemism for death. Both believers and unbelievers used this euphemism, but the difference for a Christian is that it also contained a beautiful picture of the resurrection as well. Think about this picture of sleeping. It is temporary and the person will wake up. The clearest example of this is when Jesus went to Lazarus. I love this text in John 11 verse 11. Listen to John 11, 11. It says, Jesus says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Very human, right? Lord, if this is a sleep problem, why do we have to go and wake him up? Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. You know the story. How did Jesus wake up Lazarus? Lazarus, come out. Supernatural life coursing through his corpse. And he comes awake from the dead. No longer sleeping. Beloved, this is our hope. For Jesus to raise people from the dead is as easy as waking someone from their sleep. That's how easy it is for Christ. To fall asleep is temporary. That is not our final state. We will awake again when Jesus comes again and raises us up from the grave. And this is exactly what Paul goes on to explain in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The first time I looked at that verse, I thought Paul is saying that God will bring with him the souls of those who have fallen asleep and then raise them from the dead. I don't think that's what Paul says here. There's a clue here to say that this, what he's saying here is he's talking about a bodily resurrection. Look at this two words, even so. Okay, look at verse 14 again. So he says, 
since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, in the same way, in the, in the same manner as Jesus was raised from the dead, so through Jesus God will bring with him from the dead those who have fallen asleep. You see, in the same way that Jesus died, in the exact same way that he was raised up, that's the exact same thing God will do with all believers. God will bring us out of our graves. So listen carefully to me. The Christian hope for those who have fallen asleep is not that you will see your loved ones again when you die. That's not the hope Paul speaks of here. Your hope is that you will see your loved ones risen from the dead if they have believed in Christ. That you would have a body, you will have a body to be able to hug them. It won't just be our souls, disembodied spirits, we will have new bodies. Many have stumbled over this doctrine, this bodily resurrection of believers, by asking a thousand questions. What about those bodies that have been eaten up by fish and other fish have eaten those fish? How, does, how will God raise up the dead from the sea? What about our bodies being dissolved into plants and ground and the cattle eat them and where are we? Now for the Christian, this is an easy answer, right? Nothing is too difficult for God. It's a simple answer. If God could create all things by the power of his word... If God could raise Jesus up from the dead, this is easy to him. He know, Anything is easy to the one who knows all things, who is everywhere present, and who can do all things. Everything's equally easy and equally hard. There's no difficulty levels for God, right? And the key is to see our resurrection is linked to Christ's resurrection. If that has happened, if God raised Jesus, and if you believe him, you can believe him for your resurrection, for that future resurrection. I remember while I was studying this passage, thinking about bodily resurrections, Jesus coming down, cry of archangels, trumpet blasts. I was honestly tempted to say, who can believe this? This just seems too spectacular for me to believe. But then I just took one step back and saw that the second coming of Christ is, and the bodily resurrection that is coming is connected to the first coming of Christ and his resurrection. And, I, and it, it helped me again to say, no, this isn't insanity. This is real. Do you believe that the Son of God became a man? God himself took on flesh? That he was born of a virgin? That he walked on water? That he multiplied the bread? that he healed the sick, that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead? Well, if you can believe all that, then surely you can believe everything else the Bible says about him that when he comes again. This is real. This is not myths. This is not wishful thinking. This is real. This is the future. But now Paul will connect this truth to their specific confusing situation regarding the second coming. Look at verse 15, what he says. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
That is exactly what they were wondering. Are we going to precede those who have died? Are we going to somehow experience the second coming while those who have died are going to miss out? Paul says, no way. Because they will be raised from the dead. In verse 16, he continues and says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is one of the noisiest verses in the Bible. (laughs) This is an ear-splitting reality when Jesus comes again. Now, there are three noises that Paul highlights. First, there's a cry of command. And I believe this refers to Jesus' own cry, his own sovereign call that echoes around the world, calling the dead out of their graves to stand up, to wake up. Notice how emphatic this text is, that Jesus is not going to send delegations. He himself descends. I love this in verse 16. The Lord himself He himself will come down. Listen to John 5 verse 28. John 5 28 says, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So both believers and unbelievers will be raised up from the dead. But in this passage, Paul only focuses on the believers. The second voice or or noise is this voice of an archangel. An archangel is an angel who rules over all other angels. It's the chief, one of the chief angels, one of the mightiest angels you can imagine. To go and bring all of his elect from all the corners of the earth back to Christ. I want you again to think of the noise of this. In Isaiah 6, we see the seraphims around the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy. And it was their voices, the angels' voices, that shook the foundation of the threshold. Now, that's a a small angel, right? Here is the archangel. Can you imagine the the majesty, the, the power of his voice? And lastly, we see there was also a trumpet call of God. Now, a trumpet in this era was not mainly a musical instrument like we would think about it. Nothing was done in the Roman um, uh, military without trumpet blasts. So trumpet blasts were used for armies at funerals to announce someone's coming. It meant official business. But what you should not miss here is how Paul takes this imagery of how Jesus is descending coming on the clouds, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet blast, and he alludes and shows us that Jesus is God himself. Because there's an Old Testament passage where all of those imagery is also shown, but it is applied to Yahweh, to God Almighty. Listen to Exodus 19. This is just before God gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Listen to all the... See if you can spot... All of the same imagery we've read here. So listen to Exodus 19. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Does this sound? This sounds like almost quoting what we're reading, right? Bringing out the people to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, 
Now Mount Zana was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Such an awesome text, such an awesome parallel between Yahweh and now the Lord Yahweh, Jesus, the risen Christ, now the sins on the clouds, the trumpet blasts in flaming fire to bring vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel and to bring relief to those who have awaited his coming, who have loved his appearing. This is how Titus 2 verse 13 speaks. Listen to Titus 2 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our God and Savior. His appearing will be full of glory, ear-deafening wonder. For unbelievers, this will be a totally different coming, right? For them, it would be calling the mountains to fall on them, hiding them from the wrath of the Lamb. For believers, this will be a blessed relief to see Christ, their joy, their comfort. And what happens then when Christ comes at the end of verse 16? After all of this noise, Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So look at this chronology. Paul says, this happens first. And look at verse 17. Then this happens, right? So far from these people missing out on the second coming, they will be raised first. And then verse 17 continues, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. There's the word again that we saw in Exodus 19, to meet God. Here we meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, this is where many have seen the rapture of the church. Because the word here, caught up, is, comes from a Latin word in the, uh, the Latin Vulgate, rapio, where we get our word rapture from. It means to snatch, to seize. So my question for us is, does this verse teach that the church will be raptured? There will be a seven-year tribulation and then a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ? Notice our end destination in this verse. What's the end destination in verse 17? And so we will always be with the Lord. So both those who are raised from the dead and us who are alive will come together and we will come and be caught up with in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then where do we go? It's quite funny that Paul leaves us hanging, quite literally, in the air. And the question is, are we going back to heaven? Are we coming back to earth? Where is the next step? I want to know, Lord. I have a thousand questions of this passage. He doesn't tell us. <laughs> okay. So if you believe in the rapture or the millennial or seven-year tribulation, you cannot build it on this verse. This verse does not help us to understand you have to have other verses to supplement your understanding. But this text, I think Paul was on purpose leaving us right there in the air with the Lord as our final destination. Because if we are with the Lord, what else matters? He is the final location. 
Are we going to heaven? I don't care. I'm with the Lord. Are we going back to earth? Sure. I'm with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord, where he will wipe away every tear, death no more, no mourning, no pain, with the one that loved us so much. That is all that would matter for us. Yes, I do believe there will be a new heaven, new earth, resurrected bodies. We're gonna, it's going to be a glorious future. You, you and I cannot even begin to imagine the joy of what it's going to be like. But all of that, all of the side blessings of having a body and being on earth and is going to pale in comparison to being with the Lord himself. He is our treasure. He is our joy. He is the one we have been longing for. Do you feel that? This is how Paul ends the section, right? We're in the air with the Lord. Done. That's enough. And if it's not enough for you, if you're like, oh, you are not saved. You are not a Christian. That's a sign of a heart that's dead in his sins or her sins, does not love Christ, does not care for him. You need to be saved. Your, your eyes need to be opened to see his glory, his beauty, his worth. And for the Christian, this is all we want. This is all we desire. This is our comfort in our sorrows. This reality to be with the Lord will swallow up all other realities for us. The way Paul ends this passage is very, very surprising. Look at verse 18 together with me. It says, Therefore, divide with one another over these words. Okay, is that what your Bible says? Have I misread it? Okay, sadly... That is what many Christians do with their eschatology. Eschatology, the, the study of lost things. They take these glorious truths and they say, if you don't agree to 100% with my eschatology, you're out. You are not a Christian. How can you be faithful? So let's divide over these words. Some people might even be tempted to think that that's the test of your orthodoxy. That's the test of your genuineness as a Christian. If you cannot see eye to eye on my eschatology, that's the sign you are... You are not reading the Bible correctly. You are wrong in every other area. We should not be brothers. Beloved, this should not be our attitude with eschatology. All Christians agree Jesus will return bodily. There will be a resurrection for both the just and the unjust. There is a great judgment day that waits us. There is a heaven and a hell, a new heaven and new earth. All Christians say amen to that. We say that. So to disagree on all the hows and the whens and the whatevers. And then to say, you are not my brother or we're not going to be in fellowship because of our disagreements. That is wrong. Instead, what should we do with these words? What does verse 18 actually say? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here are words for you. Have you ever felt, I wish I had words for people in grieving. People... People are standing at the grave. Here are words for you to say. Know them. Use them. Understand them. Share them. Notice this. It is not the pastor's job to encourage the people in this verse. These are the ordinary Christians in the church. These are the ordinary members because the text says encourage one another 
We should be using these words for one another. Christ died. He was raised. Even so, death will be undone. Death has died in the death of Christ. And he will come again. Beloved, this is the ultimate reality. Just as Jesus came the first time, Jesus will come again. I want to close for us with just the reading of Second Thessalonians verse chapter one. Just, just if you have to page one page or just glance over to Second Thessalonians one verse five, where Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So do you see, it depends on where you stand with Jesus, where you stand on the second coming as well. So now is the time to be reconciled to God. Now is the time to repent of your sins And to trust in Jesus. Because your relationship with him now on this side of the coming determines your relationship with him on that side of the coming, the second coming. And the promise for you is this. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Hide yourself in the rock of ages cleft for you. Flee in him. Rest in him. Then hope in him, even in immense persecution and suffering, that nothing will ever be able to separate you from his love, not even death. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we truly confess that we are finite and limited in our understanding about these realities. But Lord, thank you for this hope we have. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so we believe you will come again and through Jesus raise us from the dead to be with you forever and ever. Lord, create in us a deeper longing to know you more Pray for those here who might not know you, who have never tasted your grace. Lord, I pray that you would right now convict them of their sins. Show them their sins, Lord. Show them that without Christ they have no hope. and They will be cast into the lake of fire, except if they come and come to Christ. Oh Lord, please save those here who do not know you. Help us as believers to not just read these words and know these words, but Lord, help us to to believe them deeply and to encourage one another with these realities. Oh, Father, please strengthen our faith. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.